was December of 1940 when Anne Vorschach boarded the SS Exeter, an American export liner headed for Lisbon. While the Atlantic Ocean had always been spectacularly indifferent to the safety of its occupants, the sea was now home to a variety of new and fully realized dangers. German U-boats patrolled the sea, and enemy mines peppered once-safe passageways. Anne was well aware that one expertly aimed torpedo could fully shear the steel from the broadside of her ship. She did not care. Leslie Fenton, her husband of nearly a decade, was waiting on the other side of the channel. Three months earlier, the English-born Fenton had returned home to support his country. War had torn through Europe and ripped across its waters. Anne, ever so eager to join her partner, embarked on an 11-day journey that she would not soon forget. Last night, there was a report by radio that a ship of undetermined nationality was being torpedoed and was sinking within a few miles of us, reported Vorschach. We all felt strongly that we would like to go to the rescue of the survivors, but the Exeter continued straight on her course. I wonder whether there were tiny lifeboats being lashed about in the sea. It is so rough that we can hardly stand upright on deck for more than a minute at a time. There was rarely a moment of peace aboard the Exeter. Constant reminders of danger readily emerged for all passengers. We are in submarine waters now, and floating mines are also a topic of conversation, the actress-turned-observer wrote. As I understand it, these mines break away from the moorings and drift great distances. I confess that I kept a sharp eye out for a small, round object for an hour or so. But what I thought was a mine turned out to be a turtle, floating peacefully by with two bedraggled little birds on its back. Vorschach spent her days interacting with a myriad of fatigued and anxious passengers. When the vessel finally arrived to its destination on New Year's Eve, Anne expeditiously set foot on land. It would be the first of many days that the actress would spend in Lisbon as she awaited the next wing of her journey. Vorschach finally landed in a war-torn London on January of 1941. Weaving through pockets of smoke and debris, the actress would finally reunite with her husband, Leslie Fenton. This abbreviated moment of happiness would give way to reality as the eternally dutiful Englishman would once again return to active service. The respite was over and Anne had once again found herself alone. As the German Luftwaffe continuously bombed the city, there was little refuge to be found. Sirens blared throughout the night sky, buildings erupted in flames, and errant bricks tumbled to the streets below. The repeated instances of horror and destruction became commonplace for Londoners of all stripes. Never the writer, Anne felt it necessary to report on what she had seen. The newly minted correspondent would submit first-hand accounts of the now-impaired capital. Vorschach's first article would be published by the St. Louis Globe Democrat on February 20th, 1941. The London working day is short now, wrote Anne. As the day begins, the light floods mistily about the piles of broken buildings where here and there a red warning lamp is still burning. The digging crews are hard at work with shovel and pick, 
and near them stands a stove at which they sometimes warm their reddened hands or make a cup of tea. The streets fill with hurrying shoppers, men in uniform. Girls walk to work in steel helmets. Everywhere people go about their daily routine. The traffic is crazy and much congested. Sandbags for extinguishing firebombs sit fat and ready on almost every doorstep. You can go for blocks in many sections without seeing a single wrecked building. In other places, a stick of bombs has leveled three or four at a stroke. Walls everywhere are pitted with shrapnel. Walking past a bomb structure, I caught a glimpse of a bank clerk, perfectly framed in front of masses of debris. Silk top hat, morning coat, and cane. He stepped impatiently over a few bricks on the sidewalk and went snappily on his way. One thing strikes you most emphatically on the London scene. Women in uniform. Women driving buses, trucks, and ambulances. Women with the rank and often the bearing of soldiers, working like men and entitled to promotion like men in the service. Young girls drive ambulances through dark streets during the air raids to rescue the wounded and pick up the dead. I heard a story of one of these girls who filled her truck with 17 dead, and when there was no more room, she put two in the front seat. The daily papers are full of stories of women's heroism. There are those who are being called angels from hell, who nurse the sick and wounded and transfer them place to place, even as hospital walls are crumbling about them. After the rescue work, sometimes the first thing they do is raise a flag over the wrecked building. Tea time is the same tea time in England. Tea in canteens, in bomb shelters, in tubes, in train stations, and even bombing planes. At the Dorchester Hotel, tea time finds the lobby packed with soldiers and officers. On July 6th, Anne would send her second dispatch from London. You note many little things, began Warshak. Shrapnel wounds on the round old trunk of a tree in Hyde Park. Newly cropped sheep that graze on the lawns and lie peacefully in the bomb craters. People boating and swimming in the serpentine, while overhead barrage balloons glitter in the sun like fat silver bubbles. The model vegetable patch with the little fence around it, the man who tends it and the people who ask him questions all day about radishes and turnips. The sight of man and woman in London with rakes and hoes working their allotments. The crowd of people who walk with utter unconcern past signs that say, unexploded bomb. An old station master I know feeds the birds at tea time and keeps a gun by his side in case of invasion. There is an ever-growing heap of rubble in the park, carted there from the ruins of many an Englishman's home. Cigarette machines are marked empty, tobacco stores closed. A famous London dinner club's orchestra has an alert signature song. When the siren goes, it plays, here we go, and for the all-clear, happy days are here again. When the building shook and pieces of the chandelier crashed to the floor, the orchestra didn't miss a beat. A voice I shall always remember was that of a lady in curlers who, in the midst of thunder and deafening noise of a bad blitz, leaned out her window and shouted to a group of us standing in the street, Please don't talk so loudly, I'm trying to sleep. Anne would finish her first-hand account by detailing the place in which she lived. The old cemetery in the back of my building has a bomb crater. And on the edge of the crater is a white headstone with the inscription, 1295, Thomas Brown, let no man disturb his peace. 
When shocks of light punctuated the night sky, Vorschach would find comfort in music. The sole record in her possession was Jealousy by Jakob Gotha. On particularly bad evenings when smoke would crest over the city streets, Anne would drop the needle and listen. Before long, Vorschach became one of the ambulance drivers she so enthusiastically described in her writing. The one-time actress enlisted in the Mechanized Transport Corps, a civilian uniform comprised of first responders. Always fastidious, Anne was a quick study when it came to memorizing maps, administering first aid, and troubleshooting automotive issues. Still, Vorschach's cohort was not especially pleased to work alongside the former Hollywood star. As the only American-born member of the MTC, Anne was seen as an outsider to the group. None of this really bothered the New York-born expat. By the time the unflinching trainee had finished her education, she would be able to fix any and all motors. Within months, the new ambulance driver would find herself working 48-hour shifts. The unit would pull bodies from rubble, provide on-site medical attention, and drive through billowing clouds of black, rolling smoke. Meanwhile, in Los Angeles, California, noted Hollywood gossip columnist Jimmy Fiddler would report the news. Lana Turner's summer wardrobe is almost entirely cotton. Jane Russell is ill from overwork, making camp appearances in publicity pictures. Looks like Olivia de Havilland and Warner Brothers are headed for a court of law to settle her newest turndown of a proffered film part. Rita Hayworth's favorite car parking space is in front of Vic Mature's home. I hear Anne Vorschach has become the idol of the British Isles. Yes, without Anne Vorschach, Warner Brothers would need a new sparring partner. Enter studio star Olivia de Havilland. While Anne had suffered through the soot and rubble of London to become a newspaper reporter and ambulance driver, Leslie Fenton was about to encounter his own battle in Nazi-occupied France. A dangerous raid on a German stronghold in Saint-Nazaire proved to be a near-fatal experience for Leslie. The naval lieutenant would absorb a significant amount of shrapnel during the amphibious siege. When Anne received word, she retired from her post with the MTC to join her now hospitalized husband on the outskirts of London. While her war-wounded partner was recovering in the township of Devon, Anne decided to join the Women's Land Army, a civilian-organized outfit whose purpose was to harvest crops for those in need. Vorschach, who was once known as a prolific grower of walnut trees and prized orchids, was now in the business of gathering root vegetables. I'm living with an elderly woman, and the two of us have planted and plowed three acres of carrots and beets without the benefit of a horse, unless you want to call me the horse, said Anne. After a lengthy period of recovery, the now fully mended Leslie Fenton was finally released from the hospital. To Anne's happiness and relief, the injured naval officer would not see frontline duty again. After the couple returned to London, Vorschach was unexpectedly approached by RKO. The erstwhile actress was somewhat reluctant to resume her film career, but found the proposition difficult to decline. 
My hands are better fitted to hold rakes than rings, asserted the semi-retired performer. Nevertheless, the opportunity was too attractive to turn down. The film, titled Squadron Leader X, would become a critically championed wartime thriller. Vorshak wrote about the production for the Evening Independent. The most terrifying experience came when an unexploded time bomb dropped in on us right smack on the set one day, remembers the actress. We tiptoed carefully out of the studio, and it wasn't until days later that a demolition crew took care of the matter and we could go back to work. The RKO release was such an enormous success that Anne returned to the studio once more. This time, she would star in director Lance Comfort's Escape to Danger. In typical Anne Vorschach fashion, these two exceptionally well-received films are considered to be lost, until one of the prints is miraculously unearthed in a long-forgotten Norwich shed, will likely never see the celebrated late career performances. Before returning stateside in 1943, Anne would be recruited by her friend and fellow actress, Bebe Daniels. The plan? Entertain bedridden troops across England. In a well-meaning but clumsily devised effort, the two entertainers would assemble a ragtag team of dancers, musicians, and yes, comedians. The show wasn't always expertly produced, but the folks in military hospitals and Red Cross clubs didn't much care. Though she no longer felt like one, Anne was happy to play the movie star. In a little over three years, the Warner Brothers castaway had become a reporter, ambulance driver, and crofter. It was time to return home. When boarding a vessel to New York, the couple made certain to sign the ship's log. Leslie listed his profession as film director, while Anne identified herself as a journalist, the thing she always was and wanted to be. Back in Los Angeles, Anne found society increasingly difficult to re-enter. The sheen and splendor of Hollywood had remained untouched by war. Vorschach felt alone, depressed, and shaken by her experiences. While out on the town one evening, the actress overheard Jealousy by Jakob Gotha. The song that had once comforted her for so long was now a reminder of loss. Anne broke down in tears. Upon return, the performer had also become overwhelmingly critical of her appearance. When I came back, I discovered I was a hag, she told AP staff writer Robin Coons. I began looking into the mirror, wondering. It wasn't good for me, and I had to snap out of it. As she began to process her feelings, the elimination of undesired distractions officially began. Forshak, always on the precipice of complete change, decided to dissolve the one constant thing in her life. In 1944, after 12 years of marriage, Anne would divorce Leslie Fenton. The relationship had ran its course. Anne was ready to explore new possibilities. Vorschach would resume her Hollywood career with the flame of the Barbary Coast. In the movie, Anne breaks a window and calls fellow actor Joseph Schildkraut an idiot. While the picture has its moments, I cannot recommend the film in good faith as it stars an all-too-horny John Wayne. No, thank you. When interviewing Vorschach, reporters of the time sensed that something had changed in the actress. Anne's dynamic earnestness is now taking the form of a heavy sense of responsibility to her fellows, wrote Rosalind Schaefer of the Times-Dispatch. It might be a rather exacting thing to live up to her expectations of what one should do and be. She sets her own standards very high, 
and is critical of all those in a position of trust. In 1945, Anne started making more social appearances around town. Still, the actress was mindful of her energy, discerning of her company, and forever impatient when it came to lengthy gatherings. If your event was dull, there was going to be consequences. Emotional capital was not to be wasted. Anne even had a custom-made curfew bracelet that would chime at midnight. A careful arrangement of tiny bells would sound, alerting the actress of the time. A weird party with Greer Garson would have to go on without Anne. It was running a bit too long. Vorschach, now reestablished as a respected player in Hollywood, would only have six years left in the industry. Her third and final intermission would be the last. Answer to the previous puzzle was written and created by Rob Patrick. It was produced by Lexi McCoy with original music by Noah East and art design by Courtney Lesore. You have heard the voices of Avery Truffleman, Molly Lambert, Megan Hattie, Julia Shapiro, Brian Formo, Allison Roche, Bram Draper, Noah East, and Allie Rosenberg. Mm-hmm.